Go ahead and find Exodus 33 with me. Exodus 33. It's interesting to me uh, in the Bible, God seems to never want to act unilaterally. What I mean is that after creation, which is of course an act of God and, and no one else, but after creation, God is constantly trying to include the humans he made in his plans for the world. He doesn't just say, you step out of the way, I'm going to do all the work, and you just sit there. Um, God has things he needs done. He has a vision for what he wants to accomplish. He wants to rescue his people from their sins. But at nearly every stage in that story of redemption that the Bible tells, God is desperately trying to involve us in this story. He wants to use us to advance his plans. Not just advance his plans, but use us to help do it. In a sense, what God wants to do in the Bible is to make it a group project. I was, uh, remember when I was uh, living in Bay City, there was a, uh, he was in high school at the time, a guy named Daryl, real, real bright kid. And we were eating, eating uh, sometime, and, and we got to talking about group projects in school, and he, he had what I thought was a funny line. He said, when the teacher assigns a group project, what that really means is that it's going to be a Daryl project. And uh, some of you feel that way, and some of you were the people, not Daryl, in the group. But it's, it's frustrating to involve other people in the project, isn't it? Sometimes it, it feels that way, especially when those people aren't pulling their weight. And if you, if you want an illustration of that sort of frustration, look no further than the Old Testament, where God is always trying to work with Israel, and Israel basically keeps insisting on doing their own thing and not cooperating with God in the project. And yet God never gives up on them. Even when they as a whole abandon the project, God still will find one or two faithful people in Israel who he can use. So here's a few examples. When God wants to deliver his people from Egyptian captivity, he doesn't just unilaterally zap Pharaoh all by himself and pave the road to Canaan. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He trains and uses Moses for the task of delivering his people. When God needs to defeat a pagan nation who may corrupt and destroy Israel, he doesn't usually rain down fire from heaven on his own. He does that a time or two. But usually what he does is he uses people like Joshua, like the judges, or like David to lead Israel in battle. He wants to involve them in the fight. He wants them to share in the victory. When God wants to save Israel from a genocide in Persia, he doesn't unilaterally dispatch with Haman and just zap Haman and frustrate his plans all by himself. He utilizes the courage of a young Jewish woman named Esther to save his people. And when God needs to insert Jesus in the world to save it, he doesn't just teleport Jesus directly into Jerusalem. He uses a young virgin named Mary to bring Jesus into the world. And then, of course, when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't come with the attitude that all you annoying people step aside and let me do all the work. Go away and let me do my job. A big part of Jesus' work is to train disciples. He wants to involve people in his work so that when he ascends to heaven, those disciples will continue the work, will be his body. See, God always wants to make it a group project. He doesn't act unilaterally if he can't help it. He uses people to do his work. So here's a question I want to entertain this evening. What sort of people does God use? Is there a common characteristic we find in these people God uses? Yes, of course, faith and obedience and things like that. But to get a little more specific, 
I want to know what that is because I want to be the sort of people God can use. Don't you? I hope so. I want to participate in what God is trying to do in the world. So what kind of person does God use? I think we can trace through a common characteristic of these people in Scripture. And when we find that, I think we can discover how we can be one of the people that God uses. So what I have this evening are three people, three big people God uses. And we're going to just briefly touch on each of their stories and see what we can find. The first is Moses. I've asked you to turn to Exodus 33. There's no argument. Moses was greatly used by God. He spearheads Israel's rescue from Egypt. He wrote down the law that governed them for centuries. He did everything necessary to prepare them for entrance into the promised land. My question is why? Why Moses? Why not some other Israelite? Why not Aaron? Why anyone at all? I think we need to acknowledge God didn't need Moses to deliver Israel. What what can Moses do that God couldn't by himself? God doesn't ultimately need anything or anyone. He's God. He didn't need anyone to create the world. He doesn't need anyone to deliver Israel. So why did God choose to use Moses? What was it about Moses? I think Exodus 33 might have a clue. So in Exodus 33, Moses has just returned from scaling Mount Sinai and entering the presence of God there. As he made his way back down to Israel, he discovered during his absence The entire people had abandoned the God who just saved them in favor of full-blown idolatry. And in the aftermath of that, as God is frustrated, so is Moses, God makes a very unusual offer to Moses. He says this in verse 1, Exodus 33 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What Israel has done is, is very serious, and right here, God in His grace, after Moses has already interceded for them once, not to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, God in His grace has said, okay, I will still give you the promised land. You don't deserve it, but I'll still give it. And I'll even send an angel before you to lead you there. But He says, Moses, I will not be with you, though. For your sake, for Israel's sake, lest you be consumed by my wrath if I have to endure this unfaithfulness, and as well for my sake. The offer is, Israel can go enjoy God's stuff, but they can't enjoy God. They can't do it with God. They'll be accompanied not by God, but by an angel. This is Moses' response, part of it at least in verse 15. This is verse 15 of the chapter. And he said to him, If your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. What Moses expresses here is desperation for God. Desperation for God Himself. He wants to be in God's presence as much as humanly possible. He wants the person of God. Not just the goodies God has, but He wants the person of God. Look at what Moses had with God. This is what he didn't want to give up. Verse 11, Thus thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, The young man would not depart 
from the tenth. The blessings of God are fine. They're good. They're blessings. But Moses will not trade in a face-to-face relationship with God for a few trinkets as a consolation prize. Moses says in verse 16, that's what makes Israel distinct from any other nation. It's not how prosperous they are. There are plenty of prosperous nations now and then. Israel was never the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth, even in their richest days in, in David and Solomon. The point was never how rich Israel was. God gave them all these great blessings. The point was always that God was with them. That's all Moses cares about. And if we don't have that, I don't know what makes us a distinct people among the nations. Moses wants to know God in increasingly deeper and more profound ways. He is passionate about one thing, and that is God himself. Look with me in verse 13. Verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. What Moses wants is God, to know God's ways, to find favor in God's sight. He would rather have that than have any piece of land, no matter how much milk and honey that land flows with. What Moses wants is this, that I may know you. It is interesting that that word there translated know is often a euphemism in the Old Testament for the sexual relationship. As in Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son. Now, Moses isn't being crass when he says that I may know you. He uses the same word as is used there. But it is a way of describing the deepest possible intimacy that can be shared with someone. Moses says, I want to be as close to you as humanly possible. He is expressing a deep passion for God. And so this is what happens, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he who said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is God's response to Moses overwhelming passion. God allowed Moses to know him as deeply as possible without dying. That given the choice between God and just the blessings of God, Moses says, I don't want the blessings if I don't have you. If I can't have you, there's no consolation prize to that. Let's just be done with it if we can't have that. Can can you begin to understand what is so remarkable about Moses? as compared to almost anyone else, certainly in this era of Israel's history. Why did God choose to stay among his people, as Moses requested? The entire history of Israel hinges on Moses' reaction here. Now, no human can fully comprehend God, any more than than any person can drink all the water from the Great Lakes or suck all the oxygen of the atmosphere into their lungs. It's too big. God is vast and immense and too glorious. Moses can't behold all of God's glory. That's what God says. But the people God uses want as much of God as they can possibly handle. This is what I want you to see. The people God uses want God more than anything else. Anything short of that will not do. Not just the blessings of God. Not comfort 
Not land, not riches, not power, not personal advancement. All things Israel could have had. But to Moses, they're just cheap carnival prizes if they're divorced from the giver of the blessing. Moses is so fixated on God, the things of earth don't look very shiny. And it makes me ask myself, what is it that I really want when I come before God? What is it that really arouses my passion? What is it that I think I can't live without? What are my most earnest prayers for? Would I rather God just break off a few blessings for me? Money, health, ease? Or is my deepest concern an intimate relationship with God himself? Such that if I can't have that, forget the money, forget the health, forget the ease. I don't want any of it if I can't have that one thing. God doesn't need Moses. But Moses knows he desperately needs and wants God. That's why God uses Moses, I think. He is a man with a supreme passion for God and nothing less than that. Go with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, as we come to our second second person God uses, and that is David. Our three points come from first the beginning of the Bible, second the middle, and then third will come from the end. Psalm 27. Almost as much as Moses, David cast a shadow that, that looms over the entire Bible. Uh, he's really a central figure in God's story of redemption. God used David in his plans in a number of ways. The question again is, why? What was it about David that God said, I can use that, I can work with that? I think we can begin by saying it wasn't because David was the biggest or the strongest or the most gifted person in Israel. That's not why God chose David. Because I say that because David wasn't even the biggest, strongest, and most impressive person among his own brothers in the house of Jesse. Remember the scene where Samuel comes to Jesse's house? Samuel sees the oldest son of Jesse and remarks, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God corrects Samuel. And he says, Don't look on the appearance of the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, the oldest son. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's our first clue that David is chosen for reasons other than his stature or his gifts. We are told, look inside the heart. That's what God's doing. And a look inside David's heart is, I think, where we find the answer to our question. And I think the Psalms give us an insight into David's heart, um, an insight we don't have really into any other character uh, in the Old Testament. This is Proverbs 20, uh, sorry, Psalm 27 and verse 4. Psalm 27 and verse 4. Listen to the kind of thing David says. Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, to David, God is not a subject to be mastered. He is not a possession to be obtained. He's not a magic genie to make requests of. To David, God is someone amazing who he wants to continuously seek. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. I am single-minded in my search. What I really want can be boiled down to one thing. What is the one thing? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The one thing David wants more than anything else, if we are to believe him, is to live with God, to be in God's company, not visit God, not put in his time at church, 
not throw God a bone every once in a while, to live with God, to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What I really want you to see is that David has no interest in using God. He doesn't see God as useful. He is not a means to an end. He's not just a good help on the battlefield when he gets in a bind. He's not just a good way of bringing blessing to the nation. David speaks as someone almost in love. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Like Moses, his overriding passion is to see God. As he says in verse 8, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. His desire is the very same as Moses, to seek the very face, seek the very face of God. Go with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. This is a psalm that expresses similar ideas. It's actually a, um, a psalm written by the sons of Korah, but expresses many of the uh, same imagery. Psalm 42 and verse 1. Psalm 42 and verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The image here is of an animal sweltering under the desert sun, panting. So parched it knows it's going to die unless it can find water. What will an animal that knows it's about to die of thirst, what will it do to get the water it needs in its desperation? The answer is anything. There is no enemy the animal will not attack if it is that desperate. There is no barrier it won't try to go over or get around. It will do whatever it takes to get the water it needs. Have you ever been that thirsty? Probably not like that. Another analogy, if I can, if I can just, just work with me here. Think of, it, think of it sort of like the mindset of an addict. All addicts start out with very little need their drug of choice. It doesn't begin that way. Over time, however, a physiological change occurs. They become hooked when their bodies think they require the ingredients of the drug to survive. And they can go into withdrawal and their skin can crawl and their body can shake and, and, and they become extremely agitated. They become convinced they need it to survive. That's the only thing that comes to matter to them. Now, I'm not trying to call the psalmist a drug addict. I'm not, don't push the parallel too far. I'm simply trying to illustrate the sort of intensity of the thirst being described. The psalmist is saying, I must have God or I will die. God is essential for my very survival. God is not useful. That's not what I'm in this for. He's not useful to me. He doesn't help me with my agenda. He's not an optional extra. He's not a when I get around to it sort of thing. This man is addicted to his God and will not allow anything or anyone to separate him from it. This is the sort of passion David has. One thing I've asked of the Lord, he says, this will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Your face, Lord, do I seek. What is your one thing I seek after? What is that? What can't you live without? What would you do anything for? If that thing isn't God, then you're not ready to be used by Him. It probably means you have an idol in your heart if you love something more than God. That's what David says. That's the kind of person God uses, someone with an overweening passion. Which brings us to our third person. This is uh, Philippians chapter 3. 
And our third person is Paul. Moses, David, and now Paul. Philippians 3 and verse 7. The great apostle Paul, the apostle who plants and grows churches everywhere he goes, who wrote some of the most profound works ever written, also wrote this in Philippians 3 and verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, previous to this, has just basically listed his resume. All the things he can hold up as proof of his accomplishments, of his lineage, of his intellect, of his righteousness, and he had quite an impressive resume. And Yet he says, when I compare all of that to the honor of knowing Christ, my resume looks like trash. If I had to choose between having all these credentials and knowing Christ, and if I could only pick one, I would choose Christ every single time, and I would kick all that stuff out. I don't have time for any of it if it means I have to choose. I would give it all up for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is literally nothing better in the entire world than that. These are not the words of a man who's, who's sort of interested in God. This is not a cultural Christian who identifies as Christian when uh, the surveyor calls God is as important to Paul as oxygen is to a deep-sea diver. Divers are not fond of oxygen. They don't prefer to have it. It's more basic. They simply require it. Compared to Jesus, everything else in Paul's life looks like trash on the side of a highway. The one thing I need, he says, is God. He continues in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the determination in that? Whatever it brings, I kick all my accomplishments to the curb, and if embracing Jesus also means suffering like Jesus, I'm sticking with it. By any means possible, he says, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Nothing is more important. Share in the sufferings, follow Jesus to death, bring it on. That's the one thing I want. So what links these three people that God has used together? Each of them, I've tried to show you, has a supreme passion for God. That is the kind of person God uses. God wants to use people who are passionate about Him because, first of all, He's passionate about us. God so loved the world, John 3, 16. How much did He love the world that He gave His only Son? That's how much He cares about you. A God who is that zealous toward us wants to use people who are also zealous toward Him. God uses people who reflect His passion for us back to Him. And He refuses to use people who are half interested or not interested in Him. One more passage before we're done. This is Revelation chapter 2. The very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus makes pretty clear what kind of churches he wants, what kind of Christians he wants in his churches. Revelation 2 and verse 2, these are Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. 
Revelation 2 and verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, yet you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus threatens to shut down an active church that has been planted by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because God doesn't have any use for people like this. Now, Jesus says, I appreciate the fact you, you, you uh, refuse to bend toward false doctrine. I appreciate that. But, but God asks for more than doctrinal soundness from us. He also asks for love. He asks for our passion and zeal. He asks for first love from Ephesus, the love you had at first, which you have now abandoned. There's a story about a man who was uh, driving, driving with his wife to an appointment. They had a, one of those older pickup trucks that just had the bench seat, the one bench all the way across. And, and they sat in silence for a few miles until... So the wife turned to her husband and began to complain about how they'd grown apart, the lack of fire in their relationship. She bemoaned the fact that, that, that they no longer had the passion toward each other they had, they had before. And to illustrate the distance that had crept in their relationship, she pointed out how in years past they used to sit right next to each other on the seat as they drove. And she said, look at us now. There's at least two or three feet between us. And the husband looked at his wife from the steering, behind the steering wheel and said, as kindly as he could, he said, I'm not the one who moved. The point is, God has not moved. He is as passionate for us as he ever was. God has not changed. And if there is distance in our relationship with him, then we are the ones who have created it. We would be the ones who had drifted away. To us, like the church at Ephesus, Christ would say, Remember then how you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. There are things God is trying to do in the world. And he's desperately trying to involve us in his work. He wants to spread the gospel. He wants the needs of the brethren to be met. He wants there to be encouragement and accountability and life in this church. Do you want to get on board with God's plans? Do you want to be involved in what God is trying to accomplish? then you must have supreme passion for God. Like Moses, for whom the idea of living on God's earth without a relationship with God has no appeal. I don't want any blessing if I can't have the one who gives the blessings. We must be like David and say, if there's one thing I care about, it's the ability to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Or like Paul, who forgot about himself and his accomplishments because he is so consumed with Jesus. Those are the kinds of people that God uses. And so my question to you is, are you one of those people? Are you ready to be used by God? Is your heart taken up with Him? Is He the supreme passion and devotion of your life? Perhaps there's someone here that wants to repent of apathy, wants to repent of the fact that God has simply not been a major driving force in your life. If that's your spiritual need or any other, come forward now as we stand and sing. If I walk in the pathway I work on the cause of the day. I shall see the green.
will rest at the close of the day. And I know there are joys that await me when I've gone the last mile of the way. And if here 